Our story actually begins on Easter Day, most likely later on in the afternoon, uh, somewhere on a seven-mile stretch of road between Jerusalem and a, and a small village by the name of Emmaus. And on this road, somewhere along it, there are these two men that are heading to this village of Emmaus, and they begin to talk about everything that had been happening, everything that had been going on concerning Jesus. This probably would have included Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem, probably would have, would have talked about his arrest and, and his trial and his death on the cross, and then him being placed in a tomb as well as the empty tomb. They're discussing all of these things when all of a sudden somebody comes up from behind them, and uh, as they approach behind them, they don't know who this guy is, but we're told by Luke that it was actually a freshly resurrected Jesus. And he comes behind them and he begins to ask them a question. And here's his question. He says, what is this conversation that you, uh, that you are holding with each other as you walk? In other words, he says, I've been listening to what you're saying and, and I'm not really sure what any of this means at all. And the Bible says the response was that they stood still looking sad. Now let's look at both of those for a minute. They stood still. Why? Because they were in awe and shock that, that this guy who had just been come, come from the direction of Jerusalem didn't know about Jesus Christ. They were shocked. They, they, they couldn't understand it. I mean, everybody in Jerusalem was talking about Jesus. Nobody was talking about anything else. It was the type of shock that one time I, I was talking with a millennial, and it was the same look and expression and shock that I saw when I, when I began to tell them that, that, that I didn't know what a participation trophy was. And they said, what? How can that be? And um, it's that kind of shock when it just doesn't compute inside the mind. And, and, and here they are, and, and and they're asking, and he says, well, what things are you specifically talking about? And they go, we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a great prophet, the greatest prophet. He, he did miracles, and he did amazing teachings. But the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders, they arrested him, and they ultimately put him to death. Now, what's ironic is they're telling Jesus about Jesus. They're filling him in, and they're telling him about this along the way. And it's interesting for us because what we need to take note of is the fact that Jesus wasn't asking for himself. Jesus knew what happened to Jesus. He was there. It happened to him. He's asking not for his sake and his benefit, but rather for the benefit of these men. He wants to make sure that they know very clearly what has happened. But even more importantly, they want to know, he wants to make sure they know the significance of what it is that has happened. So he has them recite all of these things, but they're shocked that this man doesn't know any of these things. And then, of course, we see that they were also looked sad when they were saying it. And verse 12 actually shows us why they were sad about all these things. And verse 21 says, but we had hoped that he, speaking of Jesus, was the one to redeem Israel. Now, let me tell you why they were sad. They said, we had hoped, which means we don't have any hope anymore. If you were a first century Jewish person, uh, you believed that the prophets had said that one day a great Messiah would come, a great Savior would come. But their belief was a little bit distorted. They believed that this Messiah would come and his main purpose would be to, to deliver them from their daily difficulties. They were, they were being oppressed by the Roman government and they believed that he would come and he would be this great warrior and with a sword that he would strike down the Roman Empire, set his people free so that they would no longer be under the bondage and misery of the living that they were under at this time. 
And so they're sad because how in the world is Jesus who they thought? Jesus comes on the scene. They see a man of power. They see a man of great wisdom. They see a man of an incredible following. Certainly, this has got to be the ones that the prophets had spoke about, but yet he comes, and instead of destroying their enemies, their enemies destroy him. And to make things even worse, and you can continue to read down, is not only he's dead, but they don't even know where his body is. There were some women who had gone to the tomb that, was that, that morning to anoint him, and he says he wasn't there. There's some angels, supposedly, that was saying he's no longer here, he's alive, we don't even understand this. Then some of the men that were with us, some of the disciples, had, had gone and they ran, and he wasn't there, and they didn't see him, and we just don't know what to make of any of this. So then Jesus all of a sudden turns the tables. He turns the tables on him, and all of a sudden he begins to kind of tell him, hey guys, it's not me that's foolish, it's you who are foolish. It's not me that is clueless, it's you who are clueless. He says to him in verse 25, and he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Enter into his glory is another way of saying, wasn't his resurrection necessary? Now what Jesus is doing is he's saying, guys, you completely got this wrong, you missed something. You don't understand the necessity of my death and my resurrection because you don't understand redemption. You don't understand when the Bible says that God would, in fact, send somebody to redeem Israel, you thought it was that he was simply going to come to make them and help them have a better life and to resolve all of the difficulties that they have in this temporal life. And, and ultimately, the problem is they were thinking far more physical than they were ultimately spiritual. And what Jesus is saying is, because you missed the reason of my coming, now you can't understand my death and my resurrection. It would be a little bit like this. Have you ever come up on somebody having a conversation, and you walk up on them, and you're listening, and you're thinking to yourself, I have no idea what they're talking about. I mean, I don't get any of this. And the reason you don't get it is because clearly there was something that was stated earlier in the conversation that you missed out on, which because you missed it, now you can't make of sense of anything that you're hearing. It, 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 let me give you another example. It's kind of like, like binging on Netflix, right? So there you are. Don't, don't act like you don't do it. Uh, you have your iPad at night. The kids are finally in bed. And begin, you begin to binge, you know, just watch all this um, Netflix. And you're sitting there. Then all of a sudden, you go, wait a minute. When did Julio marry Maria? Uh, and when did they have these five kids? I thought, I, I thought for sure that Julio was engaged to Isabella. None of this makes sense at all. And you're sitting there and you're trying to figure out where you went wrong. And then you realize that you had skipped all of season four. <laughs> and you realize that all of season five makes no sense unless you had seen season four. So here's again what Jesus was saying. He's saying, guys, you can't make any sense and understand the significance and the necessity of my death and the resurrection of the Messiah, because you clearly don't have an idea of why I came. He goes, I didn't come to simply take away all the difficulties of life. I didn't come simply just to take away all your financial troubles and struggles and relationship problems. I will ultimately do that, but that's not primarily the problem that you're struggling with. He says, the real problem that you're ultimately struggling with is sin 
And that's why I came to eradicate. If you understand that, if you understand that I came to take care of your sin problem, then all of a sudden, my death and resurrection, it all now makes sense. You begin to see the necessity and the significance of his death and his burial and resurrection. So here's the good thing. If you've ever been to a church, a preacher usually has three points. I only have two. And I'm going to give you them very quickly. Happy Easter to you. I'm going to give that to you. But here's what I want to focus on. I want to focus on the necessity of Christ's death and his resurrection. Now, we're going to talk for a moment about his death, but I really want to focus on the significance of his resurrection. Why? Because it's Easter, right? And so what I want to do is in light of the fact, in light of you and I knowing that Jesus came primarily to deliver us from our sin problem and resolve our sin problem, this is why the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so essential to that purpose. Here they are. Number one, the resurrection is proof that our sins have been forgiven. The resurrection is proof that our sins have been forgiven. The Bible teaches a simple principle that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That simply means that every man, woman, and child has done a bunch of things, some things, many some things, that have offended God. That's lying, cheating, stealing, lusting, you, you, you name it, we've done it, and we've done it more times than we can keep count of. And we've done all these things, and the problem with all of this is that the penalty of those offenses towards God are so incredibly severe. The Bible says that the wages, that is, that is the consequent or the cost of those sins, is death. And we love to go around complaining about the problems that we have all day long, but I'm telling you, there is no greater problem for all of humanity than this, than their sin against God and the penalty that it calls for. There's no greater problem than this. And the Bible describes that it's even worse for this reason. It's worse because it describes that penalty as a sin debt that neither you nor I can pay. We have no ability to be able to pay that sin debt off. You can't, you, you can't make up for the wrong things we've done or the disobedience that we've done against God, the offenses against God, by trying to suck up to Him, by trying to do good things. If I could just do more bad things than good things, then it will somehow even out. It's just not the way that it works. Even if you today respond to what I'm saying and say, well, I'm not going to offend God anymore. Now, I'm going to let you know you're lying and you're going to offend God more. But if you were somehow not be able to never offend God again, you still have to do something with the sins that you've already committed, the offenses. It would still cause you to be able to pay the penalty of your sin. And so all of this is bad news. And the truth is, not one of you came to hear bad news. You didn't come and say, I mean, some of you were dragged here anyway. Some of you were already thinking, should I get up now? Should I get up now? Should I get up now? I'm going to ask you not to, but unless it's an emergency. But I'm telling you, some of you are thinking this is bad news. Then let me give you the good news. As bad as the penalty is of sin, God is greater. He is great in mercy and he is great in love. And here's what he did. Even though he is just where he must judge sin, your, ju- your sin and my sin, he is also gracious enough to pay the penalty of our debt. And he did this. He orchestrated this. He made a plan. This wasn't accidentally done. This was done before, he, before you and I ever sinned. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to a cross to die for us, 
to die for that sin. So he lived a life that you and I could not live. He lived a perfect life. He was, he was tempted in every way, yet sinned not. And then, not only was he live a perfect life, but he died and paid a debt that you and I cannot pay. When he was on the cross, the wrath of God began to pour out on him. And the wrath that was poured out on him was not meant for him, it was meant for us. It was meant for us because we were the ones who had ultimately offended God. And here's the good news. For all of those who would repent and place their faith in Jesus Christ, that wrath towards us is satisfied when that wrath poured out on Jesus on that day. That is awesome news. That is amazing news. It is glorious news. But here's the deal. Some of us might be sitting back. And we might be thinking to ourselves, well, if the penalty was met on the cross, then why do we need the resurrection? Is it even that important? Well, according to one of the primary authors of the New Testament, it was. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 7 said this, If Christ has not been raised, if he did not resurrect... He said, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And if we are still in our sins, we still have the penalty of God against us. That is bad news. Now, why is it important? The resurrection is the evidence and assurance that we have been forgiven. If you are like me, and if you don't want to be like me, I don't blame you. If you are an American, you probably have experienced debt, right? You've probably bought something that you didn't have to cash to buy. It could be a house, that's understandable, a car, uh, or it could be an Osaki OS 4000 CS massage chair. But just figuratively speaking, you went into debt on something that you really, really, really wanted. And you begin to pay it off. And each month, you'd begin to pay just a little bit at a time. And then finally, I don't know if you've ever gotten to this point, um, but you finally got to the little last little slip. You got to the last payment. And this is all very exciting. And you sit back and you're thinking to yourself, honey, this is the last payment. Once we pay this off, we're going to be debt-free. We don't owe anything anymore. And she goes, that is really exciting. And so you either mail it in or you pay it online or whatever it is, but you are reserved in your celebration. Why? Because you won't know that it's actually been cleared until the one that you owe ends up sending you some type of receipt saying, hey, guess, you have a zero balance. So you wait by the mailbox. And the mailbox one day sits there and it comes and you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting and, and you're hoping that your debt is paid and you're, you're, you think that your debt is paid, but you're not really sure that it's paid until the day you walk to the mailbox, you go to it, you pull out that slip of paper, you look and you, you can't even get in Inside the house, and you open up, and it says goose egg zero. You know, and you owe nothing, and you begin to skip into the house, and you go, honey, honey, it's that time, and then you begin to do the debt dance, right? And you grab your wife, and you begin to dance around. Have you never been out of debt before? <laughs> this is what happens. And as long as Jesus Christ remained in that tomb. Neither you and I could ever be sure that our debt had been paid. We could hope that our sins were forgiven. We could think that our sins were forgiven. We could sing about our sins being forgiven. But until the one we owed gave us confirmation that that debt had been paid in full, our celebration would have to be restrained. But on that third day, Jesus rose from the grave and he served as a receipt that his father held up for all to see so that you and I would rejoice and no longer be restrained because now we know that our debt is paid in full 
and now we can do the debt dance, yes? And that's what the Scriptures is. He's holding him up. He's holding his son up. He says, you want to know that I received your sin debt, your, your debt is paid in full? Here's how you know. And he lifted his son up to the right hand of the Father. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. Number two, you're halfway, you're almost done. Yeah, don't get too excited, all right? Number two, not only is the resurrection proof of our sins that have been forgiven, but number two, the resurrection is proof that we have been given a new life. It's very important. I think that first one, most of you would sit there and go, yeah, yeah, I got that, I got that. This is the one that American Christianity fails to understand, that when God saves you, he does not just save you from the penalty of sin, he rescues from sin itself. In the New Testament, there's a phrase, in Christ, and there's several different variations of it. In the Lord, there's in him, but it's used over 160 times in the New Testament. Clearly, it's important. And it's used to be able to describe the new position, or more specifically, the new life that people have when they've placed their faith in the person of Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that before we come to faith, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, but when we come to faith, we are now alive in Christ. Let me give you some scriptures. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, new, all the new has come. So the idea here is, is not just that our sins are being forgiven. You are, the word is regenerated, you are made a whole new person in Jesus Christ. There is a brand new start. You are radically changed. Now, in Ezekiel chapter 36, God describes what comes with this new life, what he gives you when he saves you and when you're born again. Listen to these clearly. He says in Ezekiel 36, he goes, when I save you, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove that heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my laws. He says, when I save you and change you, I give you a new life, and it consists of a new heart, a new spirit, and a new way of living. The new heart are new desires. He says, when I save you, you're not going to still have the, the pursuit that you had before you got saved for the things of this world. You'll still struggle because of your flesh. You'll still struggle in many, many ways. You'll still struggle in some deep ways. But who you truly are in your heart of hearts now wants to do what you didn't do before, and that is to obey God, follow his will, follow his commands, and to submit to him. You didn't want to do that when you were a believer. So what I had to do when I saved you is I had to change your hearts. I had to change your wanter inside of you. But not only did I change your heart and give you a new desire for things that you never desired before, but notice this. He said, I also placed my spirit in you. What good would it do if God gave us the desire to follow him but didn't give us the ability or the power to be able to do it? And he says, not only are you going to want more than anything to be able to please God, pursue him, know him, and obey him, but now I'm going to place my spirit in you so now you can do the very thing that you want to do. You put the new heart and the new spirit that God has placed in you, it equals a radically new life. 
Now your life looks radically different. It doesn't look, it's not just about being forgiven. It's about him radically changing you to this whole new person. And so this is what God lays out. And this, by the way, is what God does in every single believer without exception. Did you hear that? With every believer without exception, he gives them a new heart, new spirit, new way of living. And this is, for every true believer in Jesus Christ, this is what they desire. A Christian, note this, and I want to say this carefully, a Christian doesn't merely desire forgiveness. He or she desires to rid themselves of sin itself. It's not just I want to get out of hell. I don't want to pay the penalty. It's, I don't want to commit the sin that brings about the offense of God. It's not just the punishment that a believer hates. It's the sin itself that they hate and they don't want anything to do with. If you are married, congratulations. If you are married, you know very well that forgiveness is an essential part of a lasting marriage. If there's no forgiveness, there is no marriage. But you know as well as I do, there is probably a time, and I'm talking you specifically men, that either said something or done something that has offended your wife. And because you love her, you don't want to offend her. Because you love your husband, you don't want to offend them. You don't want to do anything or say anything. And you know once you do it and once you say that thing, there's this real awkwardness Because there's a fracture in that relationship, and you know things are just not right at this particular point. Something is completely off. There's no fellowship. There's no joy. There's no no reconciliation between the two until she's willing to extend forgiveness. And when she says, I forgive you, and you're convinced of that, then everything has changed, and everything goes back to the way that it was, and you're so overjoyed. How do you respond to it? With more offense? hey, thank you so much, and then offend her by what you say, and then act in her in a way, and then you offend her, offend her, offend her, offend her. Is this the way that we respond? No, not at all. The way we respond is, if you truly love your spouse and appreciate the forgiveness that that she's extended you, what do we do? You stop the offense because you know that the relationship suffers when it is spent in a perpetual cycle of nothing but sinning and forgiving. Though you know that forgiveness will always be necessary in the future, your desire is for it to come to a point where there is where less forgiveness is necessary within the relationship so you can do, enjoy more of it. Some people will say, as a pastor, I run into people all the time, I talk with them, and, and sometimes they don't know I'm a pastor, and I appreciate that much more. It seems to be more real. I begin to ask them about if they have a relationship with Christ, and it's amazing how all Nassau County somehow knows Christ. It's it's amazing. And sometimes I'll begin to get to know an individual, and they'll say, yes, I know Christ, and the one thing that they will say is they go, yeah, I know that Jesus has forgiven me of all of my sins, but the more that I get to know them, I'm trying to be very gentle with this. This isn't a, a judgmental of the intention of somebody's heart, but the more that I get to know them and to hear them and to watch their actions. The Bible just calls it fruit. The more that I just begin to wonder, do they really know Christ? And the reason I say that is because it seems to be as though they lack 
any evidence whatsoever of a new heart that desires to pursue Jesus, but the Spirit of God that makes that even possible. No true believer is merely satisfied with just being forgiven. Though they know that forgiveness will always be necessary every day of their lives, their desire for forgiveness is, is to be less necessary as they work through their life because God is changing them in this new life. See, what's so great about coming to faith in Christ is coming to Him is not about just managing your difficulties. It's not just managing your faults. It's God saying, I'm going to take away those faults. I'm going to give you a whole new desires. I'm going to change you from the inside out. And you say, well, what does that have anything to do with the resurrection? Because Jesus rose from the dead, you and I rose from the dead. Because he rose to new life, we have confidence that you and I can have new life, a new life with a new heart to pursue him, a, 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 new, a new life with a new spirit in us that gives us the ability to do so, and a new life within us that causes us to live radically different than we ever lived before. We have confidence that. When I baptize somebody, and baptism, if you don't know what that is, it's just what Christians do when they want to publicly profess and let everybody know that they're followers of Jesus. They're, they, they're dunked in water and they're brought back up. And this is what I say when I baptize them. A profession of faith in Christ Jesus and obedience to his holy command. I baptize you, my brother and my sister, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in a new life in Christ. The resurrection helps us and gives proof that you and I are not only forgiven for sin, but that he changes us so that as we progress in him, we can get away more and more and more away from the sin that has so offended the one that we love. That's what the resurrection proves. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. It's going to be very simple. Nick, you can come at this time. Here's a very simple question. I don't want to ask you, I don't want to ask you, um, do you want to go to heaven when you die? I, I don't want to ask that question. I don't want to ask you, I don't want to say, hey, you don't want to go to hell, do you? Because the truth of the matter is, if you have half a brain, you're going to say, no, I don't want to go to hell, I want to go to heaven, that sounds good. And, and some of you probably in the past have done that, and there's nothing wrong with any of those things, those are desires that we should have. But there are many people who prayed a prayer one day because they didn't want to go to hell and they want to go to heaven, but unfortunately, they're still on the same path to hell. They've never come to true faith in Christ. I don't want to ask you this morning, do you want peace? I don't want to ask you this, this evening, excuse me, this evening, that, do you want joy? I don't want to ask you, do you want God to fill the God-sized hole in your heart? I don't want to ask you any of that. I don't want to ask you this morning if you want to come to Jesus because you have financial problems or that because you have marriage problems or because you feel like your family's falling apart or you're having job struggles. I'm not asking you to come to Jesus or if you want to come to Jesus because you want those things. And here's why. Because I can't promise you most of those things. I can't promise you marital bliss. I've got no proof of that. 
In fact, a lot of the time that I spend is with Christians that are trying to work out their marriage. Somehow they came to Jesus Christ and their marriage still struggles. Now there's hope for them in Christ, there's no doubt. God's changing both of them. That's what he promised to do. He's given them new life. But I'm not asking you all of those things. And the reason I want to be very clear is because I've heard invitation after invitation after invitation, pastor after pastor, saying, hey, you want joy, Jesus will give you joy. You want hope, God will give you hope. And in true, he does those things. But that's not why we come to him. I just want to be as clear as I possibly can to just ask you these two questions. Do you want your sins that have offended God to be forgiven? And do you want a new life in Christ where not only your sins are forgiven, but you're given a new heart for God, a new spirit to pursue Him, and a life that looks radically different, one that honors God? If you want that, I can guarantee you He'll give it to you because my proof is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So you say, what do you do? That's always kind of the tricky part. The Bible just says to repent and believe. And you're sitting there, well, what does all that mean? And I still struggle with even finding the words after all these years. Here's the best way I know how to be able to identify, God, I'm guilty of offending you. I'm deserving of death and hell. But you are good because you sent your son Jesus. God, I don't want to be in this sin anymore. I don't want to live for myself anymore. I don't want to do things my way anymore. Lord, you died for me. The best way I know how, I receive what you did on that cross and your death and your burial and your resurrection, and I ask you to save me of my sins. And he forgives your sin, and he gives you new life. We're going to have two, two elders who are going to be coming. I'm going to ask them to come now. They're just going to be standing here. Um, and these are two of our elders. And here's what we're going to do. We're just going to stand in just a minute. And they're just here in case you need prayer for one. Or two, if there's just some folks that are like, man, I've been struggling with this thing all the time. And yeah, somebody said, I, when I was little, they said, hey, you don't want to go to hell. I said, I don't want to go to hell. I signed up and I walked the aisle and did all that kind of stuff. But I don't think I ever came to the point where I was overwhelmed with my own sin. And I just want to be forgiven of my sin. I want God to be able to forgive me. They're going to be there to be able to pray with you and to be able to walk through with that. If there's any other prayers that you have, of course, you want, we want you to be able to come as well. Let's stand together. We're going to pray and let's respond. Dear Jesus, we love you. We honor you. We glorify you. We thank you for all things.